It was as far as I can ascertain in September of the year 1811 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Aswarby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy who was the only passenger in the chaise, who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity. During the short interval that elapsed between ringing the bell and the opening of the hall door, he saw a tall, square, red-brick house built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added to the purer classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with round window, crowned the front. There were wings to the right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colonnades with the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall, in front, stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weather cock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post-chaise had brought him from Warwickshire, where some sick month before he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live in Ashworthy. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew anything about Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new, and it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr. Abney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the only owner of Aswarby. Certainly his library contained all the then available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine, and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon in fine as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more than he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Aswarby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbors, 
it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, thin, austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. "'How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you?' he said. "'That is, you, you are not too much tired, I hope, and by your journey to, to eat supper?' "'No, thank you, sir,' said Master Elliot. "'I am pretty well.' Uh, "'That's a good lad,' said Mr. Abney. And, "'And how old are you, my boy?' It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. I, "'I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir,' said Stephen. "'And when is your birthday, my dear boy? Eleventh of September, eh? Um, that's well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it?' I like, <laughs> I, I, I like to get these things down in my book. Sure it's twelve? Certain? Yes, quite sure, sir. Very well. Uh, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr. Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had yet as met at Aswabi. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some fifty-five years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of twenty years' standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house in the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built a temple at the end of the Laurel Walk? Uh, who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hand? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's, ro housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. Is Mr. Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven, he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions, the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. Good, bless the child, said Mrs. Bunch. Master's as kind a soul as I ever see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in out of the streets, and as you may say, this seven years back, and the little girl two years after I first come here? No, do tell me about them, Mrs. Bunch, now this minute. Well, Mrs. Bunch said, the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I, I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, and gave orders to Mrs. Ellis, as was the housekeeper then, as she should be took ever care with, and the poor child had no one belonging to her. She telling me so herself, and here she lived with us in a matter of three weeks it be, and then whether she were thinking of a gypsy in her blood or what, but one morning she got out of her bed afore 
as any of us opened an eye, and never track nor trace of her have seen eyes on since. Master was wonderful put out, and had all the pawns dragged, but it's my belief she had away with them gypsies. But there she was singing round the house for as much as an hour, the night she went, and Parks, he declared, he had heard them calling to her in the woods all afternoon. Dear, dear, an odd child she was, so silent in her ways and all, but I was wondrous taken up with her, so domesticated she was, surprising. And what about the little boy, said Stephen? Ah, the poor little boy, sighed Mrs. Bunch. He were a foreigner. Jeveny, he called himself, and he come a-tweaking his hurdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and Master had him in that minute, and asked where he had came from, and how old he be, and how he had made his way, and where was his relatives, and all as kind as a heart could wish. But it went the same way with him. They were an unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning, just the same as the girl. Why he went, and what he had done, was our question for as many as a year after, and he never took his urdy-gurdy, and it lays there on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs. Bunch in an effort to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house in which his bedroom was situated there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had been long gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I'm speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the windows, and he was gazing at a finger, figure which laid in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Michin's Church in Dublin, which possesses a horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries, a figure inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden color, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the regions of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold-boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon, with a courage which I do not think can be common among boys his age. He went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams were really there. It was not, and he went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experience at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, as Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this had always been considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night, 
and that Censorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, she broke forth rather irritably, how do you manage to tear your nightdress all to findings in this way? Look here, sir, what trouble you do to give poor servants that have to darn and mend after you. There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs. Bunch, they are all just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few moments she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how the marks and scratches can come here too high up for any cat or dog to have made em, much less a rat, for all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us, when we girls would get together. I wouldn't say nothing to the master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key of the door when you go to bed. I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. That's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can hurt you. Here with Mrs. Bunch dressed herself to mending the injured nightgown with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on Friday night, March 1812. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs. Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr. Parks, the butler, who as a rule kept himself rather to himself in his pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was moreover flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine, if he likes this evening, was his remark. Either I do it in the daytime, or nor not at all, Mrs. Bunch. I don't know what it may be. Very likely it's rats, or the wind got into the cellar. But I'm not as young as I was, and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it's a surprising place for rats, is the hall. I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch, as, to be sure, many a times I've heard the tale from men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never had no confidence in that before, but tonight I've demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, and I could pretty much have heard what they was saying. Oh, there, Mr. Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. Well, Mrs. Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you chose to go to that far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr. Parks. Not fit for children to listen to, why you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his own wits, 
What, Master Stephen, said Parks, awakening to the consciousness of the boy's presence, Master Stephen knows full well when I'm playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had in first instance intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly in the situation, but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the cellar. We have now arrived at March 24, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen, a windy, noisy day, which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the ground and looked into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly veining, striving to stop themselves to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After lunch that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time and wish to show you something connected with your future life, which is much important that you should know. And you are not to mention this to Mrs. Bunch nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven. He looked in the library door on his way upstairs that evening and saw a full brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine and some writing sheets of paper right near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier of a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time strange cries, as of lost and despairing wanderers, sounded from across the bear. They might be the notes of owls or water-birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were they not coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies, and then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall, the figures of a boy and a girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with a more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling with her hands clasped over her, over her heart, the boy, a thin shape with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of an unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long 
and the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswarbeet all that evening. In another moment this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study for the hour appointed, for their meeting was near at hand. The study or library opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he too seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, Certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were to follow. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexity, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in a man may be attained, that, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased, by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twenty-one years. To the testing of these truths, receipt, I have devoted the greater part of my last twenty years, selecting as corpa vila of my experiments such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24, 1792, the second by the removal of a wandering Italian na lad named Giovanni Poelli, on the night of March 23, 1805, the final victim to employ a word repugnant in the higher degree to my feelings, must be my cousin Stephen Elliot. His day must be March 24, 1812. 
the best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects at least, it will be well to conceal a disused bathroom or wine cellar which will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of these subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiments are appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating to a greater extent the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wild cat might have inflicted their injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion.